Hi, I'm Alicia. And I'm Robin. And you're listening to Bowel Moments. The podcast sharing real talk about the realities of IBD. Serve on the rocks. This week, we talked to Maury Javeri. We talked to her about being diagnosed with Crohn's disease at 11 years old and also having a dad with Crohn's disease who was also diagnosed at 11 years old. We talked to her about an unfortunate new diagnosis that she's currently dealing with. We talked to her about the guilt that can sometimes happen with living with a chronic illness. We talked to her about her career choice as a child life specialist and what child life has meant in her disease journey. And we talked to her about her love of dance and her future plans for that. Cheers. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the show. This is Robin. Hey, guys. This is Alicia, and we are absolutely delighted to be joined by Mari Javeri. (laughs) Oh, my God. That's taken me six tries to get that right. Super. Um, Mari, thank you so much for joining us. We're really excited to talk to you because Robin and I were both saying we feel like we know you really well, but we probably don't. And so (laughs) we're excited to get to know your actual story and not what we think it is. But before we get to that, we definitely want to start with what are you drinking? I am excited to be here and I am drinking a fruit punch Powerade. Yes. You were just telling us that you are just getting over COVID for the yes. third time. Yes. So it's good to, to replenish yes. those electrolytes. Yes. Very, we're very loving good. the electrolytes currently. <laughs> very understandable. Robin, what about you? I am drinking praline pecan coffee out of my lovely Sasquatch. Oh, it's very cute. I like it. I'm drinking mint tea today. So we're all having like a bit of an electrolyte day, I think. Yes. But the next question for you is Mari, tell us your IBD story. So I was diagnosed with Crohn's disease at age 11 in 2010 at Cook Children's Hospital. I was not new to the Crohn's world at that time because my dad is also a Crohn's patient. So I had grown up pretty much my whole life seeing my dad battle Crohn's disease. So when I began having symptoms in like early, mid 2010, very quickly we knew kind of deep down like what it was, even though it did take us quite a few months to get an actual diagnosis from a doctor. I have always been like a very anxious kid. And so for a long time, there was kind of this like struggle between like our PCP and us being like, it's just a nervous tummy. No, it's not. Yes, it is. And so like, we went through quite a few rounds of like, let's just take some acid reflux meds and it'll get better. And it didn't. So eventually uh, we got a referral to Cook Children's with Dr. Ocean Token. And he like walking into that appointment was like, yeah, I know what that is. Got me scheduled for a colonoscopy. Literally, I think it was two days later, went in, did the upper and lower and came back and it was like, yep, this is what it is. That colonoscopy showed some pretty big active disease like all throughout my colon and my ileum. And so we pretty quickly got started on Remicade and I was on Remicade for about, I want to say it was like maybe a little less than a year or maybe a little over a year before I started building up the resistance to it. And they switched me and put me on Humira. Humira worked pretty well. Like, I mean, it was great for about five years, I believe. Made my disease just like totally shut up. I mean, I was having zero symptoms inside, but on the outside, I started to develop really, really severe side effects of Humira. I started getting ulcers all over my body. 
in my nose and my ears specifically. And so all around my ears, I lost my hair. And at this time, there wasn't a whole ton of research that was done on pediatric side effects of Humira. And so we would go to the GI and be like, why is this happening? And he was like, I'm sorry, I really don't know. And so because a lot of times patients side effects of things like that can also mimic kind of what's going on inside the body. And that wasn't the case for me. I was having these really severe side effects on the outside, but on the inside, everything looked great. And so he was kind of like, we don't really know what it, what's going on. Um, so I had to go to a pediatric dermatologist where then they were able to go back and say like, Hey, this is a side effect of the Humira. It's not common. And we really haven't seen it in pediatric patients, but we've seen it in adults. And so we think that that's what this is. The only way to stop it is to stop the Humira. And so at that point, I had gotten a pretty big, um, like anxious, nervous block to doing my own shots, partially because when I did the shots, all of those outward like symptoms would flare up really, really bad. And I mean, I was in I was in seventh grade at this time. Like that is the prime time of like mean girls, like junior high girls are so mean. And so I would just dread having to do these Humira shots because I knew, okay, now I'm going to go to school and I'm going to look like I've got, you know, a bloody nose and mouth and I can't wear my hair in a ponytail because I have to cover my ears because otherwise girls are going to say stuff about it. And I had to get like a note for our athletic class to be able to wear my hair down because if I wore it up, then I was getting those little like mean comments from girls. And so I had gotten a pretty big block in um, doing the shot because I just was so scared of everything that was happening. And eventually got to the point where I started to get staff in those infections. And my doctor was like, yeah, let's not risk that one and took me off and put me on Intivio. So I started that, I think it was literally like right at the same time or around the same time that they approved it for patients under 18. And so I want to say I was maybe like a, I think I was a sophomore in high school when I started Intivio and I did that from then up until this past year and Intivio worked absolutely amazing for me. I loved it. I had zero side effects, like absolute, I was feeling great. And so essentially from the time, really from the time I started Humira, um, if you ignore those like outward side effects from the time I started Humira through my time with Intivio, I was essentially in very active remission having zero Crohn's symptoms. I mean, I honestly did not even know what Crohn's pain felt like at that point in time. Getting my diagnosis was a pretty rough start um, where I definitely had a lot of pain and things like that. But once we got my disease under control, doctors were honestly shocked that we were able to get it so under control because when I was diagnosed, they had kind of alluded to the fact that like, this is a pretty bad case. You will probably spend your teenage years in and out of hospitals. Like that's not a great prognosis. So, I mean, they were shocked that I did not have a single ER visit until I was in like late high school. And that ended up being like a kidney issue or something like that. Like I had a kidney infection and it wasn't even related to the Crohn's. So I was in very active remission up until this last year. I got married in June of 2021 and my husband and I have joked off and on about like, I just kind of held out for him. Like he never saw me sick. 
I mean, I was as healthy as a like normally abled person could be. So he had never seen me sick. And then in November, it was November 9th, a very traumatic day. I was a nanny at the time and was going between two nanny jobs that I had. I had one during the day and one in the evenings. And I was going to pick up um, my evening set of kids from daycare and got a migraine, which was odd to me. I don't ever get migraines. And so I took an ibuprofen and whatever. Pretty quickly after that, I started to feel very, very bad all over and started noticing a little bit of Crohn's pain that was not normal for me. And within about three hours, I had lost all feeling in my body. I was not seizing, but like convulsing, um, not able to control any of my movements. This all happened as I was dropping the little girl off for dance. And I actually had to talk the two-year-old through how to get on my phone and call his dad to see where he was so that I could ask him to drive me to the ER. And very scary moment. And he took me to the ER. As soon as I got to the ER, I started vomiting and I had like a 103 fever. My BP was like 160 over like 140 and my heart rate was in the 200s. And just like absolutely cr- had never experienced anything like that. We were in the ER for well over 24 hours, um, just waiting to see a doctor. This was also mid COVID spike last year. So the hospitals in Lubbock were just completely overwhelmed. And so they finally got me back and were like, it's just your Crohn's. Like they did a CT, they did everything. They were like, you have a mild sinus infection and it's your Crohn's. And I was like, okay. Sure. My dad has experienced some cardiac symptoms. I've also spoken with patients who have had very mild cardiac symptoms before in flares. And so we kind of just like chalked it all up to, oh, I'm, I must be going into a Crohn's flare. At this point, we had been battling with insurance after I got married and moved to Lubbock. We've been battling with insurance, did not like the fact that I changed my last name and I moved and they had started denying me the Antivio. So I went eight months with no medication. So it made sense in our head that this would be a Crohn's flare because at this point I had zero biologic. I had no other medications that I was taking. I mean, I was like living by the grace of God at this point with no symptoms. And so to hear, oh, it must be Crohn's disease. It must be your Crohn's. We were kind of like, yeah, okay, that makes sense. So I made an appointment with my new GI in Lubbock. Um, Dr. Karat, love that man so much. And so I made an appointment with him, uh, went in and he just happened to have previously studied cardiology before he switched to GI, which by the grace of God, I ended up with him as my doctor. And so we very quickly got involved with a cardiologist because he was like, yeah, Crohn's patients, I do see them develop cardiac symptoms and flares. If you haven't been on your medication in eight, nine months, like, yeah, you're, you're kind of due for, for a bad flare. So let's fight with insurance. Let's get you back on this medication. And then let's get you set up with a cardiologist because we just want to make sure like having a heart rate that's that high is not cool. And these symptoms went on for weeks constantly. My resting heart rate at all times was no lower than about 130. 
just exhausted all the time. My BP was super high and the Crohn's pain was very, very much there. Like it was night and day from November 8th to November 9th. November 8th, I had not experienced a single ounce of Crohn's pain in nearly a decade or in a decade. And then you just flipped that switch and I was like, I am dying. Um, And so my cardiologist worked super, super hard over the next couple months to get me an unofficial diagnosis of POTS syndrome, which stands for postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome. And my GI also kind of backs that up and saying like, I have seen Crohn's patients with that before. So um, this does make sense. And let's kind of see. But the one really bad thing about POTS is that there is not a lot of research out there. There's not a lot of treatment options. And it's often misdiagnosed as anxiety. And so getting me on and finding a medication regimen that was going to work not only with my POTS, but with my Crohn's was extremely hard because when I was diagnosed with the POTS, the cardiologist like looked me dead in the face and was like, I am so sorry that I'm having to tell you that you have POTS with Crohn's disease because I have seen these two inpatients and they hate each other. And so he kind of gave me that like forewarning of you're about to not have a good time until we get you under control. And so for the next six to nine months, I had more than two dozen ER visits. I had six week long hospital admissions, so many doctor's appointments, so many bags of IV fluids, had three pick lines put in. I am currently on my third still. And just trying to figure out how we can get these two things to just like chill out because one would get really bad and then it would make the other bad and that would make the other bad. And we just got caught up in this cycle of the pots got bad. And so then therefore the Crohn's was really bad and then the Crohn's was really bad. So it would make the pots more bad and like just kept going. And it took us forever to kind of get me out of that. And it really wasn't until I was able to get in with the Mayo Clinic with neurology there and they were able to get me the official POTS diagnosis as well as had worked with patients who also had Crohn's disease and working with their GI and their neurology department to get me really on a good regimen for everything. So I am finally starting to be a little more symptom-free. I still definitely have um, quite a few symptoms of both um, but starting to finally like feel a little more normal. Um, But it's very weird looking back because I for so long didn't really know what it was like to have Crohn's disease. I had seen my dad battle Crohn's disease. Uh, I've seen my dad almost lose his life to Crohn's disease. Um, So I've seen that, but I've never experienced it um, until now. And so it was very weird to like flip that switch and now be more on that patient side, even though I've always been a patient, it's very weird to now be a patient and having so much happen so quickly. So that's, you know, not dramatic or traumatic at all. (laughs) No, not at all. (laughs) Not, not, not at all. I see a therapist for no reason whatsoever. So same. Same. I have to go back to the beginning of your story just briefly and do a little soapbox moment for general pediatricians and primary care doctors. Oh my God. Can we just listen to 
our patients and their parents. Can yes. we do that? Yes. My daughter does not have IBD, but she does have another autoimmune disease. And mm -hmm. I was so angry. It got to the point where I was crying in the office and women's tears are often misinterpreted. I was crying yes. <laughs> because I was so freaking angry that this doctor wasn't doing anything. Not because yeah. I was, you know, sad or worried or anything else. I was so angry. And that's how it came out that he finally sent me to a specialist. Yeah. And we found out that she had, you know, I'm like, there's got to be something you can do. Oh, there's really nothing we could do. Just this cream. I'm like, that is, that is a lie. Yeah. <laughs> that is a yes. lie. You know, so. Yes. I know that we don't, we probably don't have regular pediatricians listening to this podcast mm -hmm. or primary care doctors listening to this <laughs> podcast, but if you are listening, get it together. Please listen to your patients. Get it together. <laughs> yes. Anywho, <laughs> I'll just step off on my, take a little step back <laughs> off of my soapbox for a second and get, get back on track now. So do you feel like We've heard this before and I experienced myself and I call it survivor's guilt. I don't know if the therapist is called it. Did you experience that from being in remission for so long yeah. and seeing your dad? So yeah. Oh, definitely. That I think is probably one of the biggest, if not the biggest part of my story is the guilt because I feel like I've experienced all of the types of guilt that you could feel as a patient in that at first having the guilt of my dad has never I have never in my life seen my dad healthy. He was healthy when I was very young. And then about the time I want to say that my brother was born is when he really started to have a lot more problems with his Crohn's and began having multiple surgeries and things like that. So there is not a time in my life where I remember my dad being healthy. So at first being diagnosed, it was very scary because I had seen that in my dad, I had seen him be so sick. And there's that thought as like an 11 year old of, is that going to happen to me? Like, am I going to go through the exact same thing my dad did? And looking at my diagnosis and my dad's diagnosis was very similar. And we were diagnosed at the exact same age. I experienced the exact same symptoms and like the process of being diagnosed was the same. So we already kind of had that mirroring. And so just the fear, like starting out just straight up with the fear of, am I going to go through that too? But then pretty soon after I was diagnosed within about a year or so, that was a really hard year of missing a lot of school. I mean, I was missing one to three days a week of school, if not more. I think there was a period where I missed three weeks of school straight, which is extremely hard on our family. But through that time, I saw my dad get sicker and I blamed myself for that because I was trying to get healthy and get this disease under control. But while I was doing that, I was watching my dad, like just the life drain out of him, which was so hard to go through. So I started having that guilt of like, this is my fault. Like your disease is my fault. That surgery that you're about to have, that might not have happened if I was healthy. So that was really hard to grasp as like an 11 year old blaming yourself for someone else's disease. But then it also very quickly transferred. Once we got on medication that worked, I mean, it was night and day, the symptoms for me. And so then I was getting better, but I was watching my dad continue to get worse. And so I began to experience the guilt in why is he so sick, but I'm getting better. And just the guilt of being healthy and seeing 
him and other, um, at this point I had also attended Camp Oasis and had made such amazing friends there. Why was I healthy? Why was I not having symptoms? Why did I get to do all of the normal things that I was watching my friends not be able to do? And the things that I was seeing my dad go through, I experienced a lot of that guilt for years. During that time is um, the time when my dad got the sickest that he had ever been. And when he had his ostomy, I mean, he very nearly lost his life. And I blamed myself for so much of that. And just the guilt of maybe he wouldn't be like this if I didn't have Crohn's. He, he never would have gotten to that point. But then also the guilt of, you know, I, I'm healthy, but why, why did I get to be healthy? Like I would rather be sick than watch my dad almost lose his life. And so I definitely really struggled with that up until recently. And then that guilt very quickly changed again when I got so sick so quickly and began to feel guilty for having Crohn's, but also having this other autoimmune disease. And I felt so much like a burden on my new family and my already existing family. And, you know, I had kind of said to y'all earlier that like, before my husband and I got married, he had never seen me sick. I had been so healthy. And so we kind of joked about like, oh, I just held out on you. Like, I just wanted to like tie you down. And now you're going to have to spend a week in the hospital with me once or twice a month until we figured this thing out. And so, yeah, there's been a lot of, of the guilt of Crohn's disease and having IBD in so many angles through my time having the disease. Oh, that's so hard. And it makes me so sad to think that you're blaming yourself as an 11 year old. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That was definitely a rough one to like process in therapy. Well, so, and <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. And also like, it sounds like that was already perhaps a little bit of your anxiety was leading you that direction anyway, but that's, it's, that's really hard oh, to yeah. process because it's hard to tell somebody to oh, stop yeah. feeling guilty. It's not like that helps you. <laughs> Unfortunately, that doesn't help, but you yeah. know, the nice thing yeah. about being married is it's a whole different insurance yeah. and maybe it's better than your parents' insurance. I don't know. Fingers crossed. Yes. <laughs> well, I'm still on his technically because I'm not 26 yet. So <laughs> well, all right. <laughs> He's dad still got that side of it. So <laughs> I want to ask a question about POTS. And I, you said initially your doctor was a cardi had studied car cardiology in addition to GI, which like you said, what, what a sort of karmic, what are the chances? Yeah. <laughs> like that's perfect. Um, but then you mentioned a neurologist. So is this, tell me a little bit more about this triangle yes. that sort of you're in as it relates to your care. Yes. Yeah. So when I was in Lubbock and we didn't know what was going on, um, because so many of my symptoms were related to my heart cardiology was kind of just the way that we assumed we should go because I don't know when my heart rates 230 my brain is like let's go see a, a heart doctor not a head doctor so we were under the assumption for a long time that it was just cardiac related until I got connected with a couple of Crohn's patients who also have POTS and they really helped educate me on more so what POTS is and it's actually an autonomic nervous system disorder. So your heart is actually really more so just like a symptom of the disease as opposed to like the main thing or whatever. I don't know. Um, that's probably a really bad explanation. I am not a doctor by any means. But yeah, so when I, when the, the Crohn's and the POTS got so bad at one point, it was around February of this, this past year, the POTS and the Crohn's were so bad that both of my 
doctors who were specialists in their fields were both like, I'm so sorry, but we don't know how to help you anymore. Like your case is just too complex. So we think that you need to explore Mayo Clinic because at this point we're out of options on how to help you. We don't, we don't know anymore. And so at that point I got the referral in for Mayo and that's kind of when my cardiologist first told me actually don't do cardiology at Mayo, do neurology. And I was like, what? (laughs) Like this is the first time I'm hearing of this. So we got in very quickly with the neurology and GI at Mayo. I really haven't dealt a whole ton with the GI at Mayo because my GI here in Dallas is just, God, I love her. She's the best. We're seeing Dr. Ahmed at Texas Harris currently for that. And she is the best. Love her so much. So we really didn't see GI at Mayo other than to just be like, hi, I'm here. But we really stayed with um, neurology at Mayo. And that's when, when I was diagnosed, she explained to me that there are a couple of different types of POTS syndrome. And mine specifically is neuropathic POTS. So I don't know what the other ones are. She didn't really tell me about them, but it essentially has to do with like the head and the heart. That nervous system is not sending the correct signals. And so there's a lot of trouble in things like bending over, sitting down, going up and down stairs, things like that, that will basically trigger the wrong response in my brain. And then that in turn sends the wrong response to my heart. And so my heart's just like, okay, we're, we're running a marathon, but we're not. And so it just doesn't slow down. So that's kind of where that all comes together in that triangle. So got it. But also like, those are things you have to do all the time. Yeah. So that's really complicated. Yes. <laughs> like you have to yes. sit down, stand up, yes. move. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it was, it was super confusing whenever I got the diagnosis or the unofficial diagnosis, we'll say from the cardiologist in Lubbock, which is where my husband and I were living last year. When I got that, because I was a dancer for so many years and I started dancing when I was first diagnosed with Crohn's because I was too sick to do athletics. And so we actually attributed a lot of my remission to actually being physically active through dance, kind of in like almost like a therapy way of that giving my body a chance to just like release everything quickly fell in love with that and then continued on and had originally wanted to pursue dance collegiate and professionally and so I danced on a professional collegiate team for two years in college and loved it was I mean that was what I wanted to do with like my college career and everything and so when I first got that diagnosis it was like well how did this happen because You're telling me that like, that's all dancing is, is like the bending and the moving and all of that. And like, how did that happen? Because I have been so active and that's when they kind of went into trying to figure out how I developed this um, because POTS can develop in many different ways. And that's when they kind of went back and looked and they have at Mayo told me about how they are in their research, seeing a correlation between asymptomatic COVID patients developing POTS like nine to 12 months out. And I had had asymptomatic COVID in January of 2021. And my first onset of symptoms for the POTS and the Crohn's flare was in November. So I kind of matched that study together. So super wild. That's so crazy. (laughs) I'm glad that you have, you're on the right track. It sounds like to being able to get both of these aligned. I know that This is a terrible, <laughs> still a ways, but terrible cycle to be in. But you, yeah, we're getting there. You sounds like you have a good team behind you. Mm-hmm. 
through all of this, like several people that have been on the show, you've also been still in school. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. Like, so, I mean, honestly, the number <laughs> of people who've been on the show who have gone through these horrific experiences with their disease and still been in school. And now that I think about it, that was me too. <laughs> because why not like you ibd folks are just overachievers aren't you because we are because why not but i know that you wanted to talk about this and i'm excited to talk to you about this your whole disease journey has kind Mm -hmm. of led to where you're ending up yes with your college pursuits and what you plan to do afterwards so can you talk about that a little bit yeah so when i was first diagnosed with crohn's i don't know if it was the day I was diagnosed and had that colonoscopy. I I had a colonoscopy. And then like three months later, I had another one. I think it was that one, which is where I think they gave us like the very official, like you have Crohn's. This is how bad it is. You're not going to be able to do anything with the rest of your life, but be in and out of hospitals diagnosis. So with that one, we were at Cook Children's for both of them. But I remember, I think it was that second one. I'm pretty sure was when this happened. But at that point, Brenda Sonier, who is a child life specialist, kind of came and talked to me, talked to me through the diagnosis, even though I kind of knew, but I didn't understand it on that, like, like that child's level. And so she kind of talked me through that. And then also talked to me about Camp Oasis. And Brenda has always been such a huge supporter of Camp Oasis. So Brenda is is one of the child life specialists at Cook Children's. And I just kind of instantly connected with her. I was able to go to camp later that summer and got to spend time with her as well. I also saw her like on and off for appointments and all of that. And just like the impact that she had on me in being able to understand Crohn's in a different way from what I knew of it already. Because I only knew this scary thing that my dad had. That was all. So Brenda was able to really work with me through um, like coping skills and all of that. And I very quickly knew I wanted to do what Brenda does. And so I definitely like thank Brenda for everything and like helping me get where I am. And so I, from that point on, knew I wanted to be a child life specialist. And so I went to school to study to be a child life specialist. I went to Tarleton State University and got my bachelor's degree in childhood and family studies with a concentration in child life. And I got my minor in child psychology. So I have absolutely fallen in love with this field, getting to work with kids who are in the hospital, not only kids, but their siblings, their families, just all of those different aspects of being in the hospital, getting to work with those patients through like diagnosis and coping skills, educating on diagnosis and teaching children just those like things that they're going to be able to take home and teaching them that like you are not your diagnosis and like you are worth so much more than that. And here's how we're going to handle it all. It's just, I love it so much. So I just graduated in May, but I still have to become a child life specialist. You have to do, um, well, half is like a very loose term, have to do a practicum for one semester in a children's hospital, which primarily consists of shadowing. You get little bits of doing therapeutic activities with children, some minimal interactions with patients, but it's a lot of shadowing and just like really learning what the field is. And so you have 
have to do a semester of that. And then the big thing that is required is your internship. So you have to do a, I believe it's a 600 hour long internship for a semester, unfortunately unpaid internship with a children's hospital really. And that's where you really are learning to be a child life specialist. Um, And then you go on to take your certification exam and then you get to be a certified child life specialist. So right now I have just accepted a practicum position at Dallas Children's Hospital or Children's Health Dallas. So I actually start that not this Tuesday, but next Tuesday. And I'm just so, so excited to finally get to really experience child life in a hospital setting on the other side of things. I was also able to join Brenda this summer at Camp Oasis as a child life student. So I got to go with the med staff at Camp Oasis and kind of see what child life was like on that side of it. So that was also a very like full circle moment for me being that that's really where I decided why I wanted to be a child life specialist and then to get to go back with Brenda and experience that was just super amazing. So yeah, it's a very fun feeling. I love it. I love working, like getting to see all the different patients and all of the therapeutic activities. And they're also things that I get to do in my own life too. So it's, it's a very fun field. I love it a lot. Yeah. Just looking at your face when you talk about it, (laughs) it seems like it's the right fit for you for sure. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) I love it so much. (laughs) Talk to us a little bit about, because, you know, we had Dr. Sabina Ali on and she raved Mm -hmm. about her child life specialist is like, you need child Mm -hmm. life specialists. They're great. Yes. (laughs) And she herself also has inflammatory bowel disease. And so obviously she was diagnosed Mm -hmm. after she actually went into gastroenterology, which was interesting. Oh, wow. But I'm curious if, (laughs) is that where you would want to see yourself or does that feel a little too Mm -hmm. close? to home. That's question number one. And then second question is, you know, we've also talked to a couple of folks about like working with really young kids. You know, you were young Mm -hmm. when you were diagnosed Mm -hmm. with Crohn's and what are some ways you would approach a child that's that little to try to help them understand their disease, regardless of what it is, but maybe if IBD is, is kind of what we're obviously what we talk about on this podcast. So ideally that would be nice. Yeah, I think ideally, I have always a little part of me has wanted to go back into like the GI world, just because like that does feel like home for me just in so many different ways. And so yeah, that's definitely somewhere that I think I mean, the process of becoming a child life specialist is just so hard. And I know lots of people end up like dropping it because it is a very hard process. The Association for Child Life Professionals has a lot of regulations and things in place requirements that are definitely very time consuming, not very financially stable things. So I will be happy to be placed anywhere. I am proud of myself for making it this far. So I will take whatever I can get. (laughs) Um, But if it were to be able to be in a GI department, I definitely think that that is where I feel the most at home. So yeah, I definitely think that hopefully GI, but I will take what I can get. So I'll, I'll, I'll do wherever. So, and then in terms of like working with young children, young children are actually my absolute favorite. I, through my studies at Tarleton, learned that young, young kids is just like where my heart is. And so I ultimately hope to get my specialization in infants and toddlers. 
which is definitely also a very odd spot, especially, you know, with IBD patients, you don't see a lot of IBD patients getting diagnosed that young, but there's like a multitude of ways you would have to go into an interaction with a family like that, because all of the things are very um, circumstantial in having to look at just so many different areas in interacting with a family, whether they're siblings or something like that. And that's also something I'm very passionate about is working with siblings of patients because I have a younger brother who I also saw had to have to see me go through being sick and also feeling guilt, you know, watching him get depression and things like that through watching me be sick. And so I saw my brother really struggle a lot with that. And that was one of the things that when I was diagnosed, I or we didn't really do was necessarily include my brother in things like the hospital visits and all of that stuff. And like, mind you, again, my my brother for sure has never see my dad healthy. And so I think maybe some of that was almost trying to like shield him from that. But at home, he was just seeing his sister sick. And so he was never at the hospital necessarily to work with a child life specialist. I think had he been there, probably would have been Brenda (laughs) would have come and like worked with Colby through like, hey, do you understand like what is going on with your sister? What are some ways that we can, you know, support her or what are ways that we can support you through this? Here are some things that we can do at home to like feel closer to sister or whatever like that. So siblings is an area that I'm also very passionate in because there's so much evidence in how many amazing things can come from a child life specialist working with a sibling of a patient, not just working with the patient. So, so yeah, there's a lot of things that would go into like interactions with, with a patient, depending on things like that. I agree with that hundred percent. I really do think that frankly, adults in general have a proclivity to assume that if we don't tell kids, they'll worry less, but kids are very observant and very connected to their, the people around them. So they can tell something's going on, you know? And so if you sort of just leave them in the dark, they're going to go to the worst case scenario. And so it's like, you got to kind of include them, even if you feel like it's maybe not that that's why maybe we need child specialists and like all hospital systems to work with kids. Oh, I agree. You know, like I definitely agree. You know, my dad was diagnosed with MS when I was 16. So I was old enough, you know, that I understood a lot. Maybe I was a little self-absorbed at 16. You know, everybody is. Yeah. But when my dad was diagnosed, it was really like, well, well, we won't tell Alicia because it will worry her. But then I just was like, what's going on? You know, and so I was immediately like, my dad is dying, you know, and so it made it significantly worse because I didn't know what was happening and it would have been great. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. There's so much research out there on just kids need to know now things need to be obviously told in a very age and developmentally appropriate way. You obviously should not say certain things to children. It needs to be on a level that they can understand, but they need to understand and they need to be told. They deserve, they have the right to know what is going on in their body. They're entitled to their own autonomy. And so as a child life specialist, that's one of the things that child life specialists really hold close and work towards is is having those conversations with kids and educating kids and families in a way that they can understand what is happening to them in a not so scary medical way. So this brings up a question for me when you're working with the families, specifically the parents, 
how much time does child life spend with the parents, right? Explaining, I mean, is there any kind of education around how they should talk to their mm -hmm. kids about what's happening? Because I, yeah. I mean, the first time that I found out that there was even a thing called child life is Bailey was she had a colonoscopy in high school. Mm -hmm. She might've been a junior in high school. And because of me, mm -hmm. like, I'm like, we are doing, you think yeah. something's wrong. We're doing the test. Yeah. Um, and <laughs> this bouncy little person like shows up <laughs> bedside as we're rolling into the room and starts talking to me and brings me this fancy pillowcase. And I'm like, okay, lady, you need to calm it down. <laughs> yeah. Like, I don't know who you are. What is happening right now? Yes. You know, and so, and Bailey was a teenager mm -hmm. too. So I didn't even think about it being, you know, child life. Yeah. And I'd had many, many, many colonoscopies at that point. Yeah. So I, first of all, I loved it after I found out what it was. Yeah. But it was also like simmer down. Um, <laughs> yeah. But then what I'm assuming because of Bailey's age, she was a teenager, wasn't too much interaction with me. She was there for Bailey, which I appreciate. Yeah. So when it is younger children, toddlers yeah. specifically, I mean, we do have very early onset IBD. Yeah. What kind of conversation is that with the parents? I'm going to be completely honest. I'm not super sure. I know that child life specialists do obviously work with the family as a whole. And it may just be because I haven't really gotten a ton of that like actual hospital yeah. time. But I know that when I was diagnosed, obviously, while I was still uh, passed out on those good drugs, my parents were pulled into a room with my GI specialist. And they, I believe, have told me before that there was a child life specialist in there with them. Maybe my brother was there for that. I don't really know. I'm not super sure. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, um, you don't have but, to have all the answers. I just love the concept of the child life yeah, also I, working with the parents. Yeah, I, I know that there is a lot of emphasis in working with the family as a whole because a patient's diagnosis is not just affecting the patient. It is affecting every single part of the family one of my favorite theories in child life is family systems theory in how every single aspect is going to have an impact on something else. And that's going to have an impact on something else. So everything kind of falls together. I haven't had a ton of time working specifically, I guess, with families. I did, however, while I was at Tarleton, you have to do some volunteer hours for child life. And so I was able to volunteer with the child life team at McLean Children's Hospital in Temple. And while I was there as a volunteer, I honestly had more interactions with parents than I did with children. Now, obviously part of that is because I have hardly any education at that point. So I should not be having conversations with kids aside from bringing them whatever toy they want or coloring book or book or whatever. But I do remember having quite a few conversations, almost just like letting parents vent while I was there. So I'm assuming that probably a lot of that kind of stuff still happens as a certified child life specialist so it's funny because all I can think of is like is all of the privilege that goes along with being able to like go into a profession where like you have to go volunteer and you have to do 600 unpaid hours and all this stuff I'm like <laughs> shit man this is like we're gonna end. yeah anyway that's a whole different conversation for a different day yeah. And it has come up in, yeah. in social work as well. I mean, same thing for social yeah. work is that like we- Same yeah. thing for dietitians. Same thing for dietitians. Unpaid yeah. Who can afford to do that? Yeah. You can't. Yeah. Privilege. It's a lot. Yeah. And I mean, <laughs> yes. and then who ends up in these positions is typically people who have money, yeah. you know, because yeah. who else can go in? Or 
a yeah. lot of family support a lot a lot of family support yes right yeah. or a lot of debt well, or just a yeah. ton of debt which oh yeah you know oh yeah well and like one of the really hard things about it I'm just going back to like becoming a child life specialist is that to do a practicum which okay so for your internship some hospitals will require a practicum some won't so it's very different it's kind of just you know it's it's a good idea to just do one if you can and so for the practicum you apply to all of these hospitals i applied all over the state of texas and most hospitals a lot of hospitals might not even have a practicum like some hospitals barely have a child life team as it is so there's a lot of requirements in being able to support a practicum student or an intern student and so you have all these hospitals that have the ability to host a practicum student and then you might have availability to accept like one to three and so you have hundreds if not thousands of applicants trying to get these positions and you're only actually able to accept maybe three. I think three is the most I've ever heard at a hospital that I've, or that I've applied to three is the max that they've accepted. So yeah, at children's health, I believe they offer to two or three. And so there's so many people that apply for them. And again, a vast majority of the hospitals that offer internships require a practicum. And so that's something you have to do if you want a better chance at obtaining an internship, but then not every hospital that offers a practicum offers an internship. And so there is even less availability for an intern. And the hospitals that I've seen, at least most of them, again, have one to three, maybe if they even have the availability for one. So you already kind of weed out to this like really small group for practicums. And then you're weeding out to an even smaller group for intern students. And like, I have friends that I personally know in the child life or trying to get into the child life field who have applied for years trying to get into these things. And it's just such a hard field to like navigate and get into because there's all these requirements, but like, it is so worth it. You have to do so much to like make yourself stand out and it's all definitely very, very worth it. But like, it is definitely a difficult field to navigate and getting into. I mean, I guess it makes sense that they would put a lot of requirements in place Mm because of the gravity of what you're doing, you know, like you can, oh yeah, you don't want to screw kids up that are already in a (laughs) medical situation, Oh yeah, you know? want to yeah but it mm-hmm. still does seem like it's limiting the number of people who can get into the field and again oh, yeah. limiting the type of people or you know the mm-hmm. resources of the people that can get into the yeah, field and that's definitely that's kind of that's disappointing definitely. and frustrating I think in a lot of ways and and seems okay. like something that could be addressed just yeah. for equity purposes <laughs> yes you know because the simple fact is that like parents may not be as inclined to hear you or or take in the information that you have just because of, you know, representation matters. People want, sometimes it needs to be delivered by somebody that looks like them. You know, we, Mm -hmm. we talked to Tina and several of our folks from the South Asian IDD Alliance, and they talk about how like, there's a lot of distrust among types of medicines or that these sorts of things. So sometimes if it's coming from somebody who is of South Asian descent, it might be something that resonates a little differently with the family, that kind of stuff, you know? So I don't know. Oh yeah. I'm on a soapbox. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's, I mean, there's lots of stuff that we study in, in getting the education for this field on the sociocultural theories and how you have to be aware of all of these different things in going into an interaction with a family, because that, <laughs> that again, like it's going to have an impact on not only that patient, but that family. So you have to be very aware in doing all those things. For sure. Yeah. 
you mentioned dance and dance being very important to you and wanting to sort of add that in as an element of, of your career and what you want to do. In your questionnaire, you wrote you were interested in starting a dance program for specifically kids with disabilities, but I don't want to go down that path if yeah. the POTS has made this so that it's just going to be a bummer for you. No. Okay. All right. <laughs> no, no, That's not at all. That. Yeah. So I did step away from dancing that like more collegiate professional side due to an injury not related to the POTS wasn't even a thing at this point. It may have a little bit to do with the Crohn's just because the healing was extremely difficult. My, I just wasn't able to heal ever from that injury, which we know that there's a lot of correlation between like IBD and bone health, things like that. But I have super thankfully after stopping dance in like a collegiate form was able to pick up being a dance teacher while I was living in Stephenville with the Stephenville Dance Center, which I absolutely loved. I primarily taught, we called it level three. It was mostly like four through uh, sixth graders, seventh graders that little age group, which is just such a fun age group. And they are extremely talented. So I was able to continue teaching dance, which I honestly love even more. Like it is so much fun and getting to see like that passion in those kids' eyes was really great. But one of the things that we did in high school was we would have one of the girls from the special needs class come join us. I don't remember because it was again, so long ago. I don't remember if it was like once a month or once a six weeks or what, but we we would have one of the girls come and like be an honorary dancer with us for the football game. And so they would get to be in the pep rally with us and they would get to, you know, go on the field with us and all that kind of stuff. And they would come into our class and like, I just, I loved it. And I saw how dance helped me so much in my remission that I very quickly knew that like one of the things that I have always dreamed of is opening up a dance studio for kids with special needs and disabilities, because we see so much on things like music therapy and just physical therapy and things like that. But um, there's not a lot of like dance therapy out there. And I, as a little girl, saw so quickly how that impacted me in my health journey. I would love for other people to get to experience that. So I've also got other friends with IBD who are dancers and have been able to say the same things and like how dance has helped their IBD journey. And so I would love to be able to teach dance for students with all disabilities, but love to get some of those like IBD patients in there and stuff like that, because I've been able to see how beneficial it has been to my health. It is hard to believe, but we've actually been talking to you for quite a while. So it is time for me to ask you our last question. What is the one thing that you want the IBD community to know? I think the one thing that I would want the IBD community to know is that you are not a burden because of your diagnosis. And it's okay that your IBD journey looks different than someone else's. Whether you're in remission and feeling guilty when you see other people sick or you're super sick and you see other people healthy, your worth is not defined by your ability or by your diagnosis. I love that. That's so good because you're right. There's guilt on either side. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Mari, thank you so much for coming on. It was really delightful to talk to you and to hear more about your story. I think, like I said, I feel like we both felt like we knew you, but I, I obviously that was not (laughs) the case. (laughs) So we really appreciate it. So we're going to end by saying cheers for joining Bow Moments. Cheers. Yes. Cheers. Hi everyone, this is Mari. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe and share it with a friend.